We are continuing in Ephesians 2 tonight. Let me read our text and then we will get into it. Ephesians 2, starting, if you have your books, you can open that and start in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, this was a, an insult that Jews used to refer to non-Jews, the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." I don't know why it's stretching off the screen. Just pretend like it's not. I think we'll be able to read what we need to read there. This week, uh, our family headed to Austin for a family wedding. And uh, after the ceremony, I had a small part, and it was a Jewish ceremony, and I had a small part in the ceremony. I don't know if you've ever seen a preacher be invited to preach for five minutes in the middle of a Jewish wedding, uh, but I hadn't either until this week. Uh, but um, after the wedding, there was a dance, uh, mostly like other wedding dances that you've been to. And we were just, as a family, sort of sitting casually around our table. And then they cranked up Earth, Wind, and Fire's September. And Amy and I jumped up to head to the dance floor. And our kids, we sort of drug, this is a true story, our kids, we sort of drug along with us to the dance floor. Here's, uh, I'm not, my remote's not working here, guys. Oh, you're working on the thing. So there's a picture of us dancing that will come up as I'm telling the story at some point. There we are. Um, if, I, if you could see this, the, the coming pictures after this, you would see Ella like disappear out of frame, you know, frame by frame, because she thought I was videoing uh, us dancing. But, but uh, one of the funny things about this particular moment for us is that for me personally, uh, it took a long time for me to... Uh, as Paul would put it, tear down the dividing wall between me and the people on the dance floor. I spent a lot of my life uh, staying at the table and watching everybody else look ridiculous on the dance floor. Um, in college, to appease a girl, I took country western dance to try to learn how to do that, and I Q-dropped it. I'm not making that up. I Q-dropped a one-hour PE country western dance because I felt so sorry for the girls that had to dance with me every single week. It was miserable. Um, and that struggle for me continued well into marriage. And the wall between me and the dance floor was mostly about self-consciousness and comfort for me. It wasn't that I hated the people that were out there. Um, I might at times make fun of them or talk about how ridiculous they looked, but it was because I was covering for my own insecurity, right? That I didn't have the courage to just go out there and look stupid like everyone else. 
Uh, and now, at 43, almost 44 years old, that wall is mostly gone. And uh, like a lot of you, I've discovered that there's no better place than the dance floor at a wedding to believe that it's for freedom that we've been set free, right? <laughs> That's what people are doing out there is living into that belief. But something funny happened here. I mentioned Ella wanting to get out of the frame. So our 11, our 13, and our 16-year-old um, are still dealing with that wall a little. And... Uh, they, they were not thrilled about being out there, though I give them all credit for including Aiden, for just following us out there and without having to be, like, forced to go out there. But, you know, that moment when everybody circles up and then people start taking turns, go in the middle of the circle to dance, uh, and you have to have really have gone, torn down the dividing wall to, to go in the middle uh, yourself. Um, so Amy did it at some point. Uh, I did it at some point, and clearly the kids were not going in the middle. So at some point, I actually grabbed Ainsley by the arm, took her out in the middle with me. We did our thing, and I turned around, and Ella was gone. Um, and uh, I asked them later, because I've gone to other dances with them. I, we, the girls and I have a daddy-daughter dance that we go to every year, and there are no inhibitions like that in that environment. And I asked them, what's, you know, what gives? What's different? And they said, we know everybody there. We don't know most of these people. And it just occurred to me, same thing was true for me, it's true for them, that wall is about comfort. Even though I'm like, man, I did 40-something years of work to tear down that wall. Don't build, a, don't build the wall back up for yourselves. And I think there's a lot of things like that in parenting. And as we get older and we look at generations after us, we see these walls that we've torn down. Uh, and, and then we look and people who come behind us are dealing with a rebuilt wall, the same sort of like wall to protect security or comfort or to keep other people out. Whatever the walls are for, they're grappling with a rebuilt version of the same wall. And that's a, a silly example, but I want to use a silly example on purpose because I want us to be sure to catch when we get into what Paul writes here um, as we deal with his discussion of Jesus pulling down the dividing wall between people and God's family, he is definitely talking about like overt hostilities between people and tearing that down. But caught up in that are other walls between us and other people that we've built or we've maintained for our own comfort that prevent us from embodying what he calls here one new man, one new humanity, a new whole family. What he's going to go on in verse 19, we'll see next week, to describe as members of God's holy family family and residents of his household. And when we see that scene of, of, of Palm Sunday of Jesus entering and people saying, Hosanna, and, and the Pharisees saying, are you going to do something about this? Part of what's happening there is he was upsetting the comfort of the Pharisees. He was tearing down walls that the Pharisees were comfortable with because they kept them in place and they kept people that they wanted on the other side of the wall out. And that's part of what's remarkable about that scene of Jesus entering and whole groups of people responding, yes, save us, and the religious leaders saying, hey, 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 what are you doing to the wall? And so I want us to talk about here in Ephesians 2, first of all, I want to talk about what it is he's actually saying, and I'm going to move that through that fairly quickly because this is a passage where the meaning is pretty plain, and then I want us to talk about what I think it might mean for us, Okay. So just as a kind of summary statement, what I think Paul is saying here is this, that the cross not only saves individual people, 
but it also reconciles all of those individuals into one family of God in a way that's whole. When I say in a whole way, that's what I mean, in a way that is whole, unstained by the kinds of divisions that mark the rest of the world. And the clear implication here, I think, is that if you're not different from the world in this way, if we are not different from the world in this way, we're living outside the power and the purpose of the cross. So the essence of his message here, I kind of break it down into four statements, and then we'll look at the text where I get these these ideas. First, Jesus and his cross bring people who were once alienated from God into God's family. In verses 11 through 13, he says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, and that would be all of us, at one time, remember that you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, God's people, and strangers to God's prov- promises, the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's an acknowledgement here of two kinds of brokenness that exist in us before we meet Jesus. There is a division between God's people. We were separated from the family of God, he says. He actually says that first. And, there was, and there's also a division between us and God personally. Two different kinds of divisions that Jesus, when he enters the pictures, brings us close. We were once separated from the rest of God's family. Jesus brings us together. We were once separated from God. Jesus brings us together with God. Okay, he's also telling us in the same way, so in the same way we were, we were brought near to God, in the same way and at the same time, Jesus and his cross tear down the walls between different groups of people, making us all part of one family. In the same way and in the same time that we're reconciled to God, we're reconciled to one another and to God's family. And my next statement that I think is clear here in the passage is that those two reconciliations, our reconciliation with God and our reconciliation together as members of God's family cannot be separated. In verse 14, Paul says, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul doesn't say he brought some peace to us. He says he is our peace. So there is a unity and a tearing down of the wall that Paul says, this is actually bound up in the flesh of Christ, in the crucifixion of Christ. And then in verse 15, he says he did that by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What Paul is describing here is Jesus coming and fulfilling the law, but also abolishing the requirements of the law in the way that they were hoisted upon the Jewish people. And that law had become the wall. So when Paul talks about Jesus tearing down the wall, he says, by abolishing the law of commandments. And part of the purpose of that law was to keep some people in and some people out. And so when Jesus comes and abolishes the law and creates in himself one new humanity, he, he creates a reconciliation between people that can't be separated from the reconciliation that happens between humans and God. And just one little piece of early application here, we're going to get quite a bit of application down the line, but if, if, 
if tearing down the wall, when Paul says he came in and took down the dividing wall, if he did that by, by abolishing the law, um, and, and because the law was a dividing and an excluding power at that point between people, if God's law, Paul is saying God's law can no longer be used as a justification for division, for putting up walls between people, certainly our customs and our preferences can't be used as a dividing wall either. That's what Paul's saying here. He took down even God's law in so much as it was a dividing wall. And then in verse 16, he says, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He says, we are reconciled both to God in one body. The reconciliation of these divisions is inextricable, the divisions between us from our reconciliation to God. That means if you embrace, if you don't embrace this new humanity that Paul's talking about, this oneness in the body of Christ, you deny the work of Jesus on the cross because the work of Jesus on the cross was not just for your personal salvation and relationship with God. It was to create this new undivided humanity in the church, in God's people. He hasn't just offered a way for that to happen. He has become that kind of peace. So if we are in him, then that peace is our new reality. These are two interconnected kinds of reconciliation that happen here. And then the last thing that I think is pretty evident in this passage that Paul's saying is through the cross, Jesus tore down the wall of hostility and killed the hostility itself. The emphasis here um, is, is something different than just saying that Jesus can tear down walls or he can kill hostilities. Paul says it in the past tense. He has killed in among God's people, he has killed the hostility and broken down the wall. The division, the divisions that exist between us cannot survive in the presence of the cross. So, so to the extent that we still live with those kinds of hostilities or we still experience those kinds of divisions, it is outside the presence and the power of the cross. And our living, if we are living in the shape of the cross, in the way that we heard Paul articulate in Philippians 2, the passage that Josh just read to us, if we are living cross-shaped lives, there's no space for these walls or these hostilities because Christ has torn them down. God looks down at those hostilities. He looks down at those existing walls and says, wait a second, that's gone. I dealt with that. You're just building new walls for your own comfort. Is, is, I think, the essence of that meaning, okay? So I wanted us to kind of get just some clear statements about what I think Paul is saying here. There's a clear context of Jews and Gentiles. I'll talk about that in just a second. Um, but, but this is the essence, I think, of his message. So what does this mean for us in 2019? I think the obvious implication is for racial and cultural divides in the church. I, by the way, I had a really entertaining sermon about racism and racial reconciliation, but I scratched out all the good stuff, funny stuff, entertaining stuff after what Josh said. Um, so, no, sorry, that, 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 <laughs> that didn't land. <clears throat> the obvious implication here is racial and cultural divides, but those aren't the only walls or hostilities that we've reassembled after Jesus tore them down. And I think the call here is to consider all the places that we have walls 
that provide us comfort, but that prevent us from embodying these descriptions that we get in Ephesians 2, one new humanity, this one new body, members of God's holy family, residents of his household. I think the call is for us to look for the places and the ways that we still have walls that, that comfort us, that make us feel okay, but that keep us from being this kind of church and this kind of people. And I mean big C capital church, and I mean small C community church. Because there are many ways, I think, that we're not, member, we're not living as members within the church of the same family who reside in the same household. Uh, I want to say one thing first before we dig into a few passages that I think give us clarity about the implications uh, of these truths in Ephesians 2 for us. uh, What I want to be careful that I don't do is try to draw a really specific parallel between, uh, and this, this happens with this text sometimes, and it's a temptation for sure, to listen to Paul talk to Jews and Gentiles and then take that and make a really easy and quick one-to-one application to blacks and whites, or blacks and Hispanics, or whites and Hispanics, or any number of things. There absolutely is overlap, and we're going to talk about it, Um, but I don't think there is an exact parallel. We can't make the exact parallel because the circumstances aren't exactly the same, But, but here's one thing that I do think we can take away from the fact that Paul is speaking as a Jew to Gentiles. Um, And I think it's worthwhile for a room of us who are mostly white, which makes us mostly majority people. We're certainly majority people. If you're white, you're a majority person in this church when it comes to ethnic background. Um, And in a lot of the spaces where we live and operate, we are a majority people. One thing that I think we can grab onto and take away um, in, in the midst of what is a very active and volatile sometimes discussion of race and race relations in the culture and in the church is to remember that we are the outsiders in this passage. The Gentiles, all of us, unless you were born and raised in, in truly in the Jewish world, you are one of the outsiders. You are the Gentiles who have been once outside, far away, now brought in. And we typically engage conversations about race and racial reconciliation from the perspective of never having experienced been the other, most of us. Most of us can tell our family history without, within a generation or two, running into an ancestor who was rounded up and rehomed in some kind of internment camp, or someone who was beaten for looking another man in the eye, or someone who fled a hopeless environment where drug lords threatened the safety of their children and, and went somewhere looking to save their children's lives and then got deported back to that exact same circumstance, or someone who was lynched for speaking to a white woman. Most of us can tell our family histories without running into that very, very quickly in our family history. We're coming from that majority perspective, usually when we talk about these things. But part of the power in Ephesians 2 for us is that we are the Gentiles, and we ought to find a way to connect to that heritage of being outside in a way that gives us a new perspective and a a new kind of empathy for those in our culture whose more recent history and experience puts them in the position of the Gentiles when Paul writes these words. Okay? So, Let's, let's 
dive in with that in mind. I think Ephesians 2 is one of the most powerful passages in the scriptures for this current climate of disunity, particularly along racial and ethnic lines. But I want to be sure that we don't marginalize it as simply saying, hey, you shouldn't be hostile to people who aren't like you, and then determine I'm not hostile to people who aren't like me, and move on. I want to be sure that we see Paul's theology, because what I think we get here from him is a theology of wholeness, a theology of reconciliation. I want us to see it fleshed out as we are called beyond settling for just not being overtly hostile or overtly racist and into a new way of living into that one new humanity that Paul describes here, okay? So I wanna look at two passages of scripture that I think flesh out his theology here and instruct us to apply what he teaches, all right? First one is in 1 Corinthians 12, and Paul starts writing, or or the first part of what I wanna look at says this, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And I want you to notice that as he does this, we don't always talk about this passage in this way, but as he writes about this, he specifically calls into, uh, into the, con- the conversation racial divides, class divides, economic divides when he writes, for in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free. Everybody across all the spectrum. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. And then if you move down to verse 20, he starts applying what that looks like. As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Here's the application that I see in this particular passage of what this means for us. God's new reality is greater honor for the other so that, there's a cause and effect articulated here, so that we see God's image in them and have the same care for one another. And then there's a reason for that because this demonstrates the power of the gospel to tear down those divisions, to kill the hostility and to create one new people. I just want to challenge you, first of all, to look at those last three things, to tear down the divisions, to kill the hostility, and to create one new people. And tell me that's not what the world is desperately searching for right now. And the scriptures say those things are found when the church starts getting out of its own familiar spaces and divisions and finds the image of God in other members of God's family and serves those people in humility and loves them like we love ourselves and so demonstrates that it's only Jesus and his cross that can fuel this kind of revolutionary new way of living. What the world is looking for can only come when the church lives this way, is what Paul says here. There are two quick things I want to say about this before we look at the second passage. The first is that, just speaking honestly, 
I think this passage illustrates another layer of hypocrisy for the generations of Christians who turned a blind eye to racism or worse, endorsed it because, and here's what I, what I want to be sure you see in this passage, even if you bought the lie of inferiority that fueled racism and fueled racism within the church for decades, even if you bought that lie, Paul clearly says here that you should be giving special honor to those members of the body who seem less honorable. There's something about God's heart revealed here that transcends even our own wicked sort of biases about the inferiority of other people. And if you wonder why a lot of non-white folks, even in the church, are still skeptical of the white church, it's, there's a lot of reasons, but here's one of them. Because the instructions of the scripture are clear about how we treat one another, no matter what class or what, what part of the spectrum of society people come from. But here's the second thing, the deeper truth I want us to see here, is that God himself bestows and tells us to bestow greater honor on those we deem less honorable. So some of you are squirming here uh, about whether I'm saying people who aren't like us are inferior or less honorable. And, and let me be clear that the application is here is not that we are in any way superior to people who are not like us. The application is that we are inclined to view ourselves and people who are most like us as the sort of default blueprint for what is good and normal. If you do just a little bit of research, you will quickly find lots of studies that reveal that even infants start to show signs of this, of, of prejudice. It's not ill-intentioned. It's just we are inclined to view ourselves and people who are like us as normal. And that leads to, over time, because we are imperfect and inclined to sin, a way of viewing other people where this idea of superiority and inferiority, whether or not we say it out loud, becomes part of the background of our thinking. In the command of Scripture, what Paul's doing is trying to root that out of us. So the command of Scripture is to see God's image in the other, the ones who are not like us, to resist our tendency to, by default, give our honor and our time and our attention and our care to those like us, and to embrace this reality, the one where we extend greater honor to those who have typically been denied honor, so that and I'm quoting Paul here, there may be no dissension within the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So God has intentionally designed the church to include those we are tempted to view as inferior for a reason, so that we can embrace God's way of showing to these people greater love and honor. And he's done that. The purpose of that kind of diversity in the body is actually unity. His goal in putting the different people from different walks of life in the body is unity. He leads us into what Paul describes as no dissension and having the same care for one another by putting us in proximity to those who aren't like us, who we might otherwise in our flesh be inclined to view as less honorable, less respectable, even inferior. This should, for the record, undermine our tendency toward viewing people who aren't like us with condescension or some kind of paternalism instead of affirming it. It should take us through our sense of superiority and through our tendency to see uh, the speck in the, in, in the other's eye 
while not seeing the plank in our own. And through our various disagreements with people who aren't like us, and it should take us to a place of giving them greater honor so that, here's the reason, Paul says, I want you to give greater honor to those people so that you lose your dependency on the security of that dividing wall and you love others like you love yourself. This is cross-shaped living. This is following Jesus in, in the Jesus that Paul describes in Philippians 2 into living the way of the cross. This is asking and allowing God to make alive in us the new reality that he's achieved in the cross. To, to make alive in us what he has done by in his flesh creating, tearing down the dividing wall and creating a new humanity. But it can't happen if our lives are so separated into spaces that are built just for us and into clusters of people just like us, okay? Second passage, and then I'll give you a few suggestions and we'll be done. Galatians 2, this happens. Paul is writing and Cephas, for the record, is Peter. And Paul says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood self-condemned. Here's why Paul was angry with Peter. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. He understood what I wrote in Ephesians 2, that the dividing wall had been torn down. But after they came, some, some Jewish muckety-mucks, after they came, he drew back and kept himself, kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy. Peter not only committed this sin, but he led other peoples into it, so that even Barabbas, and this is a painful statement to Paul because he loves Barabbas, even Barabbas was led astray by their, their hypocrisy. And then he says, but when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles, to live like Jews. What this means for us is this. The gospel compels us to invite others to our table and to go to their tables. When Paul sees Peter shrink back to being with only his kind because the influencers of his kind might judge or criticize him for actively being at the table with the other. He says, I opposed him to his face in front of all the others. I confronted him and called him out in front of the others. And then lucky Peter, Paul wrote it down to be canonized for all time as well. This is a gospel issue. It was not enough for Peter to believe that the Gentiles were equals and be content for everyone to eat at their own tables. That was not enough. The gospel had already compelled Peter to go sit at the table with the other. And when he pulled back to stick to his own kind because it was safer, because it was more comfortable, because there was no risk of judgment or condemnation or criticism, Paul has a visceral reaction and accuses Peter before them all in front of everybody of living out of step with the gospel. It's a gospel issue that we're at the same tables. This, by the way, is where Paul starts in order to build, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's rooted in this story. 
Our being at the table with others who are not like us is a gospel issue. I don't have time, but I wanted to read you the story of Zacchaeus, and so I invite you to just go read the story of Zacchaeus through different eyes and see what Zacchaeus' response is when he receives the gospel of peace. See what his response to other people is. Okay, let me wrap up and suggest a few ways that we can take some meaningful steps in this because this is where I think we often get stuck, is what do we do, all right? So I, I want to break this down into some local suggestions, into some sort of broader capital C church suggestions, and then into what I want to call some generational suggestions so that we're thinking forward um, when we think about this. So uh, locally, um, as you've heard me say before, I just want to encourage you to seek out relationships with people who are outside of your normal bubbles, your normal circles, who are not like you, whose experience in life isn't like you, who may or may not look like you, who may not have the same amount of money that you have, the same amount of opportunity that you have. It starts in relationships. It's not where it ends, but that's where it starts, okay? I also want to encourage you to get into unfamiliar spaces, and for most of us, I do mean by that, Look for some spaces that are not majority white. Um, the, uh, there's an African-American museum in town, and they have events regularly, and they're looking for support regularly. Go to some of that stuff. Uh, there are MLK Day activities that you can go to. There's a whole world in our community of cultural events that are different than where you normally traffic. We live in a community and in a state that's going to be majority Latino, Hispanic, uh, in just a short time, and uh, as James Cho pointed out to me recently, A&M is almost uh, categorized as a Hispanic-serving institution, which means at least 25% of the student body population is Hispanic. There is ample opportunity for you to get outside of your normal spaces and get in some other spaces. And, and go from that, and, and I want to encourage you to engage issues that don't directly impact us. Uh, do a little research on the statistics for housing and education and prison rates for African Americans in this country. There is ample evidence that there has been very little real progress for many minority communities, despite the appearance of legal equality. And listen to me, whatever you think about that politically, as the church, we are talking about members of our family. Whatever you think about it politically, they are members of our family. We've been made one new humanity with them, and it's time to find a way to reside in the same household with them and to suffer with them instead of standing at a distance while they suffer. Okay? Um, I'll move on. <laughs> uh, James uh, has started a, a podcast called BCS Race Talk, he wanted me to be sure to point out it's not primarily for the church. It's primarily for our community at large uh, to talk about issues of race. But listen, listen and hear some perspectives of people in our community that are different than your own, okay? Almost done. The broader church, just a few suggestions. There's a great book called Color of Compromise by uh, an African-American guy, Jamar Tisby, that I'm reading right now, read that book. Read the perspective of theologically conservative African-Americans on the church as it exists in the U.S. today, okay? Uh, three churches in Louisiana, black churches, were burned recently. There's a GoFundMe. You can take a picture of that, or if you don't get it, you can email me. You can probably Google and find it. This is a way that you can reach out and give to the church in, in this area. 
And then I think we should be thinking and praying about what the church is going to do about this. This is a map of, uh, that, that represents just a very small number, um, 1,500 migrants who in February came through El Paso and worked with a single nonprofit. This is a tracking of where they ended up once they transported into the rest of the country. This is our, whatever you think politically, this is our reality. And one of those circles overlaps our geography. We need to be thinking and praying about who we as a church are going to be to that migrant community. Okay? Last thing is this, what we can do generationally. The first thing is that we need to teach and model to our children this kind of relational awareness, this kind of historical awareness. And honestly, for most of us, that's going to require educating ourselves at the same time. The goal here, um, let me just say, give you one goal in this. Give your kids a chance to not see um, intelligent, difference-making people that don't look like you as aberrations, as exceptions. Because most of our educational system is, is set up to, to posture it that way, okay? So we need to teach and model to our children something different. We need to be willing for the long haul, to think about systemic issues and to help change structures. Structures that keep those walls in place. Walls that we don't always see because we're often on the side of the wall where things are okay and the frontier is wide open to us. But we need to be willing to think about these bigger structures. And this is my my last thing. Don't wait till you're an adult to learn and act. You guys have an opportunity Students, kids in the room, you have an opportunity to let the gospel shape the way you see people around you and not be shaped by the culture and not be shaped by that tendency to see yourself and people that look just like you as the most normal and, as, uh, and to let that become a dividing wall, okay? The goal here, just to wrap up, is to invite people to our table and to go to their tables. It's not to fix people or to heal people ourselves. It's to embrace the healing power of the cross for us and for them by living a cross-shaped life that's willing to sacrifice. It's for us to lay down in these breaches that we have created or simply settled for, even in our ignorance and even in the breaches we haven't created. The goal is following Jesus in that way, believing that's where life and resurrection are going to come from the death, from the darkness, from the division in our culture and in the church. Let's pray.